I would say the fact you asked the question shows the success so far of the COVID consensus in imposing a single narrative. I mean, yeah, it's not about being neglectful of healthcare. Nobody accused people who wrote pandemic preparedness plans prior to 2020 of being not caring, neglecting healthcare. Nobody accused them of that. That was the scientific method. That was what was deemed to cause the least amount of harm to society as a whole. So I think it's about focusing on risk. And here we have to go back into things like, you know, why did government media suggest this was something that everybody was equally at risk from when that was patently not the case? Listeners, welcome back to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe. Hello. Hey. George Hoare. How's it? And myself, Alex Hochuli. Hello. We are here to talk about COVID. Now, you may not want to hear about COVID. You may not want to talk about it. Uh, many people are trying to brush that whole nasty episode from 2020 to 2022 under the carpet for reasons understandable as well as reasons very ignoble. And yet books have started to come out discussing what exactly happened and asking questions. And this is very important. And it's important to do so so that those in power can be held to account as well as to understand what happens when and if there's another pandemic. So today you will uh, hear me speaking to the authors of a new book called The COVID Consensus by Toby Green and Thomas Fatsy, um, just to tell you who they are. Toby Green is a, uh, a historian of inequality, past and present, and uh, with a specific focus on West Africa. And Thomas Fatsy is a journalist and writer. Um, they're both authors of The COVID Consensus. And Thomas Fatsy, you may have heard on this podcast way back in episode 38 on the economics of exit. To tell you just a little bit about the book, there was a first edition that came out, which was authored uh, exclusively by Toby Green, and a second edition, which has come out in January of this year, which is uh, with Thomas Fatsy, which uh, vastly widened the scope of the book, uh, and you'll hear a little bit about that when uh, you hear the interview. Um, guys, you've recently um, been in in-person discussion with, uh, with some of these authors, right? So I attended the book launch for the book, and it was in late January at King's College in London. But they also had a great panel. They had a great lineup, including um, some key signatories of the um, Great Barrington Declaration and another King's College academic who did, who's done work on kind of um, racialized medical policies around ethnic uh, minorities. And so there was... Um, there was a, you know, it was a, I mean, it was a great book launch and not least because there was an interesting kind of conversation on the panel among the, um, you know, the kind of um, Gray Barrington signatories or the, some of the leading fa mm. um, lights behind it, kind of looking back retrospectively on what it was all about, as well as then um, Toby and Thomas taking questions from the audience, some of which were fairly kind of pointed, you know, and um, pushing them on some of the arguments that they've, that they've made um, elsewhere. And so it was a very good discussion. And it was um, also just, um, you know, it was good to cohere people um, around criticism of something that has been, up until recently at least, so um, tremendously kind of um, pleased and consensual in terms of the range of acceptable opinion. Yeah. I mean, the COVID consensus, 
yeah, very much so. I think this this has been the position. Um, and yeah, just quickly to add to that, I mean, I saw uh, both of us, Phil and I, were at a conference in Queen Mary University of London back in June where Toby and Thomas presented um, on some of these ideas which form some of the key arguments of the book. So yeah, um, a counter-consensual take on, on COVID um, and I think a really important one. And just to say, I mean, it was Sunetra Gupta and um, Jay Bhattacharya, who's the, um, um, they're both kind of uh, public health specialists in different places, Sunetra in London and um, Jay Bhattacharya in um, Stanford. And they they were the two people who were um, um, uh, important kind of um, signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. And they were there as part of the panel discussion for the launch of the book, just to be clear to listeners as to who I was referring to. Okay, so you're about to hear my interview with Thomas and Toby. Uh, the second half of the interview will be available only for patrons as usual. That's at patreon.com slash bungacast. We hope to see you there. And if you like what you hear, make sure you follow us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. See you in a bit. All right, I am here with Thomas Fatsi and Toby Green to talk about their new book, The COVID Consensus. Hello, both. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks Great for having us. It's a pleasure. So your book obviously talks about something which has become, uh, as the title alludes to, uh, a consensus. And I think to the extent that even people who are critical treat it in such a sort of factual manner, and it's so consolidated as a fact that it's difficult to imagine that things could have been otherwise. Um, I myself um, am a little tired of talking about COVID after, (laughs) as I think many people are. Um, So I congratulate you authors um, on this book for asking some hard critical questions when I think a lot of us don't want to ever have to look back. Um, So Mm -hmm. just to get started, a very basic and potentially dumb sounding question, but what is lockdown? Because that is the central issue in the book. It deals also with vaccinations um, and other uh, matters of the pandemic, the origin of, of the of the disease and so on. But uh, the lockdown is, is the sort of central question. So I ask what is lockdown because over the course of the pandemic on this podcast, we had a number of debates about it and often it was an issue that people are talking at cross purposes and they have in mind Um, different sorts of measures, depending on where they are, even across different US states, let alone uh, across uh, different nation states or regions of the world. So there's a variety of measures from simply closing some businesses or preventing large indoor gatherings, to mandating everyone stay at home, um, unless they are officially allowed to uh, leave by the state. So what do you mean by lockdown? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. If I can jump in, I think, um, yeah, because it's a, well, the first thing to be clear on is that in, in the medical terms, it's a new concept. And that's very important. We talk about in the book how it's a concept which actually comes down out of the closing down of uh, prison facilities in the United States in times of, of, of rioting. That's where the word comes from. So it has actually its etymology is interesting because it comes out of a carceral context. Uh, and actually, I think it's interesting if we it's instructive to actually look at what the word how people describe it in other languages. So uh, Spanish, French, confinement, confinamiento, confinamiento is confinement. And that actually hints at what lockdown should be or or as a concept, which is a quarantine. Quarantines are historic, have been used historically. And of course, that's very important. But the fundamental difference with the lockdown was that it, it moved out of that historic usage, which was for local outbreaks of disease and became a unilateral measure 
directed by the state uh, and entire regions where there were no COVID infections at all, for example, as is the case Somebody I interviewed uh, for a podcast with Collateral Global in Angola, a colleague there said, you know, there were whole areas being put into confinamento, uh, which had no COVID cases whatsoever. And that's historically new. That's very new. So it's a, it's, it's a historic measure of quarantine. Uh, and, the other th- and, and, and we can debate also the applicability of this measure to the particular type of disease that COVID has been. That's another issue. But that, that would be my starting point. And, and it's instructive to look at the different words in different languages, I think, to understand its its roots. Thomas, I don't know, what do you... Thomas, do you have a, a kind of definition of what you're talking about when you are when you say lockdown? Well, yes, of course, lockdown has come to mean different things in uh, in different contexts, in the context of the, um, of the pandemic. Um, I, you know, I would generally understand lockdown as meaning the um uh, essentially the quarantining of uh, of healthy people um and and i think maybe even more in general um the the idea of society wide non pharmaceutical interventions um I, I would i think that would be probably the most you know the best blanket definition for lockdowns the idea that a, um, a respiratory virus can be um, can be contained, controlled, and ultimately um, eliminated um, through the uh, pursuit of various forms of society-wide measures. Uh, um, I would say the most widely used have been the quarantining of, uh, of, of healthy people, and in some cases, the quarantining of uh, pretty much the entire the entire population. Uh, you know that again, that has happened in varying degrees. Uh, but I would say, I mean, that's what most people don't understand lockdown to mean. Uh, and you know, the, the closing down of businesses is kind of a uh, uh, an inevitable consequence of that. Um, so, so I would say, I mean, this is the most. Um, as Toby was saying, I think this is. Um, regardless of how you you know specifically define or what you specifically understand lockdown to mean, um, you know, I would say it's the it's it's and you know it's this novel idea of um, of of of, of uh, addressing a respiratory virus through or you know any form of virus or a pandemic more in general with these you know blanket society wide measures. This is something that is really was really completely unprecedented pre-COVID. And in fact, it went against uh, every, um, you know, every pre-2020 pandemic plan that had pretty much ever been drawn up by national governments or even by the World Health Organization itself. All previous plans were aimed at minimal uh, disruption possible, minimal societal, minimal economic disruption. Uh, and instead, you know, so lockdown is kind of, you know, it's a complete, um, um, you know, um, <clears throat> turnover of that of that concept of that logic instead of, it's the logic that mm. you know uh, the, all of society has to be mobilized uh, at every level in order to fight a virus I mean that's what I you know that that's that that's I think is a is probably a good, a good understanding of what lockdown as a general concept um, has has come to mean I think in the context of uh, of COVID but you know as I said it didn't really exist before that yeah there's an important ethical dimension as well to the word uh many words uh are descriptive but contain moral value judgments attached to them and in the case you know this idea that you know that was said often about this time last year actually around lockdowns when 
Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of uh, Infections and uh, Infectious Diseases, Allergies and Infectious Diseases in the US was being uh, was going to congressional committees to discuss lockdowns. And, and he said, well, we never had a, a proper lockdown. China is having a proper lockdown now. And and the implication of that was that the China, that there was a value judgment attached to that, which is China is taking this seriously and China is doing what's necessary to, as Thomas said, you know, the link between lockdown and disease eradication. The idea that this was, go- and, and that that was a moral value superior to visiting dying people in care homes, uh, allowing children to play and socialise and, and, and move on into the world. That, that, so there was a value judgment attached to, to the word of lockdown. Yes, okay, so I mean, just to just to, um, I think it's useful in the book how you um, phrase it as open-ended national lockdowns, and that might seem like a banal phrase, but I think in the context it's useful in that it distinguishes them from quarantines, which obviously refer to forty days, um, which is time delimited, and the lockdowns were open-ended time-wise as well as national in their extent rather than local. And I think that's important. It still leaves open the question, I guess, of what specific measures we're talking about. Because in the book, you at times seem you know, sympathetic to measures that uh, Sweden took, um, which you know limited large gatherings and, and so on, um, which under the definition you've proposed might be considered a lockdown as well um or even to a certain extent you seem sympathetic to what was initially pushed by uh, neil ferguson in the uk who was responsible for a lot of the ultimately incorrect modeling uh, on which these policies were based but where he proposed something which was a step uh, less than the full lockdown that the uk eventually suffered um so uh, maybe I just for maybe I'm being pedantic, but just for the sake of clarity, um, what exactly what kind of measures specifically are, are we talking about? I mean, what level do you set a lockdown? What specifically are you being critical of? I think one of the things that certainly and I think Thomas put this very well, we're being critical of the unilateral application of a particular concept to I mean, the first point is that whatever, you know, the model and, and as you imply in your question, there's a there's a kind of continuum there. If you read Mark Woolhouse's book, The Year That the World Men Went Mad, he says, you know, the fundamental crime was lockdown. But actually, if you read the book, he supports pretty a lot of restrictive measures up until that final lockdown. He says, you know, that was a mistake. So there is kind of a continuum there. And people, as is often the case with, you know, very sustained arguments, are actually sometimes talking about slightly different things. But what we can agree on is what Thomas said, is that fundamentally there is this continuum of measures you know, you might be more extreme or less extreme, but which fundamentally are designed to shut down society with the stated aim of eradicating a disease and that you will do what it takes to do that. That may include at some point uh, shutting schools. It may include shutting businesses. It may include making people not able to go out of their house for exercise except for once a day. And even if they sign a piece of paper in Spain to show, as in France, to show what they're doing. So there's a range of things within that, but that is the fundamental aim. And the fundamental thing that, we, you know, whether, whatever you think of that, that model is certainly a Western biomedical model. And, you know, the internationalist part of the book is showing, you know, that the idea that this model is going to be applicable in all circumstances all around the world is an incredible act of uh, scientific hubris. It's unscientific, takes no account of how disease spreads. Uh, it takes no account of the living, the social conditions of people in poor countries, uh, how they live their lives, the economic frameworks, what it will mean. You know, it takes no account of any of that. And it fundamentally shows the way in which science is actually socially embedded. And so our fundamental criticism is also the way in which that aspect was completely ignored for many of the debates. So I think those would be our critiques, really. 
Yeah, and I'm very excited to talk to you guys about that specifically um, in just a bit. But I wanted to um, continue this discussion right now about the ways that lockdowns were rolled out. So, I mean, one question of mine is whether the motivation for these open-ended national lockdowns um, that were put in place uh, at a certain point with the idea that they would remain in place until vaccines became available um, and, and you know, and that ended up being the the, the case eventually. Um, was that a result of a fear that the death toll might be too large, or that the socio political consequences of a large death toll um, would be devastating, um, whether socially or to the legitimacy of uh, of, the, of those states that had failed to impose these measures? Hmm. Well, I think that that's definitely um, one way of understanding why um, you know the, the Western and not just the Western political classes did did what they did what they did, but I think that's kind of um, also letting them off the hook. I mean, I think this is what this is what we, we could frame as you know a responsible you know left critique of lockdown, you know, and so this idea that yes, lockdowns, you know, in hindsight were probably a mistake, didn't achieve their stated aims, um, but at the same time they were the result of panic. Of you know, um, the, the, you know, the governing classes really, uh, you know, not not knowing what to do in the face of this completely unprecedented um, event, and uh, and so this is what led them down the road of uh, of lockdowns to have you know to to avoid what what you know the political fallout of a massive death toll. I mean, this is one way of understanding these policies, but um, but I think you know putting it all down to panic and unpreparedness. Um, I think is 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 you know is is a bit of a simplistic explanation for what happened because um you know this I think if if we had seen these measures being rolled out you know in, in one country you know I mean I think uh, this explanation would make sense if we had seen you know different responses in different countries and so you could say oh some countries panicked and and went for lockdown other countries panicked and they did something else you know uh I mean if it was all the result of panic and confusion and you know um governments not knowing what to do, I think we would have seen a diversity of responses as well. And said, when you look at how harmonized, uh, you know, with differences, but also but generally, especially in the West, how, how harmonized these policies have been, um, everything points to uh, a certain level of coordination, um, in fact. And, and the idea that um, certainly governments were being pressured by, um, by certain international organizations, by certain um, you know, very high profile um, uh, person, you know, international uh, um, figures, philanthropic figures, uh, the WHO and other organizations that were clearly pushing for these, um, you know, for these policies. And so there, there was, there clearly was pressure, a lot of pressure being applied on, um, on governments, you know, and but at the same time, where where was that pressure coming from? I mean, was that pressure was that just you know did that pressure just emerge as a result of uh, again maybe uh, you know again was it just a set of you know, did, was the media just you know doing clickbaiting and then trying to ramp up you know uh, people's fears and, and that did that in turn cause governments to react the way they did? Again, I think this that was part of, that's part of what happened, but. I think you know when when you look at how these policies were rolled out quite uniformly, um, uniformly across countries, uh, 
you know, this does point to uh, the idea that these that that there was some some degree of of planning, there was some degree of coordination, and there was some degree of understanding that that was the direction that um, that that we should um, that we should head in. I was just going to say, you know, I think you put it really well, and I, I think it's interesting to take. You know, this is the second edition of the book. The first edition I wrote very very fast in four weeks, and it's interesting to look at the different points at which these editions have been published. So the first edition went to press in February 2021, mm-hmm. so less than a year after the beginnings of the lockdowns. And at that point, and Thomas and I, we've talked about this, you know, it was still possible to think, yeah, to attribute this to panic. There was a, you know, there was a panic response. Uh, people didn't know what they were doing. They rushed into this route. Uh, and, you know, and this this was the outcome. But as as the vaccine rollout then took shape, I think that became harder and harder to sustain. Uh, because again, of the of the fact that you know, fundamentally, when we talk about panic, we think you know people didn't know what to do. But as we show in the book, in the, you know, Thomas, you've done a fantastic job, I think, in in really bringing that to the second edition. You know, making it such a different book than the first one. But uh, you know, actually, people have been preparing for pandemics for years. You know, the WHO had published a report on what to do about pandemics three months before uh, the lockdowns began. And and in November 2019, there was a whole pandemic preparedness tabletop known as Event 201, where he, you know, very important organisations, the WHO, the World Economic Forum, came together. And, you know, the idea that people didn't know how to respond, given the amount of preparedness which was taking place, is, doesn't make any sense at all. You know, we, that's just not a starter. So then yeah, we have to... Look yeah, the, the idea of a... Com- oh, sorry. <clears throat> now, go ahead, Thomas. So I mean the, the idea the idea that this um, you know that they basically ripped up their own rule books um, I think has been reasonably widely discussed, but it d- certainly deserves repeating as you do very well in the book and in detailing the way in which these plans were abandoned. Um, but I think a, lo- a lot of also with the discussion that was had um, around the time and throughout the pandemic was the lack of preparedness. Right. So that um, not only did they rip up their plans, but that the lack of state capacity stood exposed in many Western countries and kind of to a certain extent upended those tables, um, just in terms of whether well, you want to. If I can just say, and then I'll let Thomas. Hospital beds and so on. No, I'll, I'll just get Thomas. I mean, th- there was a lack of preparedness for this plan. That was what there was a lack of preparedness for. There was a lack of preparedness for this plan because it hadn't been conceived before. And that was why people then panicked. Uh, because nobody prepared for this and didn't know how to face it. But there wasn't a lack of preparedness. Yes, austerity and the impact on health services has to, you know, be given, uh, you know, given its due, and that clearly had a major impact on what happened. But at the same time, you know, I've spoken to very senior people who who have were involved with the pandemic response in the UK, who said, you know, and have been involved in pa- pandemic preparedness for many years, and said, you know, they used to think that a standard potential outcome of a serious pandemic in the UK was 300,000 deaths. And they would people, you know, that was how it would be. And so the idea that, uh, so, so, and that, that was baked into, that was the policy. That was the policy in this. So, so what went what, what happened was uh, people weren't prepared for what happened. They were prepared for pandemic. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you explain the, the emergence of a massive push for something that's ne- not only has it never been implemented before, it's never even been conceived of before. So again, it's hard not to see that you know some level of preparedness again and, and preparation 
for an event like this. You know, one doesn't have to go as far as as, as saying, you know, this was an entirely planned. You know, and you know, and so the the the, the appearance of the virus itself, the virus itself, is part of is part of the plan. But what we do know, simply because you know, I mean that might be the case, but we have no evidence for you know no hard evidence for that. And so you know, when it comes to the origin of the virus, there's still a lot of of confusion. Even though you know we know that certain um, avenues were <laughs> of of of, um, of investigation were suppressed. So, you know, we, we have, so that's an interesting aspect, but we don't know for sure, you know, how this virus okay, came about. Um, but we do know, as, as Toby was saying, that they've been preparing for this for, um, for, for an event like this for a very long time. I mean, the, you know, the idea of bio, biological warfare and bioterrorism has been uh, the main focus of, um, you know, security and defense uh um, planning and you know and 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 drawing up of scenarios for um for, for a very long time in fact since since 9 11 and so um and so various responses had been had had been drawn up and you know if you look at the uh you know i mean that um, several several of those scenarios really do uh you know uh, the do hark, you know, I mean, they have a lot of elements in common with what actually, you know, with what actually happened with COVID. So if you look at the 2010, um, you know, uh, Rockefeller report on, uh, on, on, on where they, where they envision different scenarios for a global pandemic, they have one of the scenarios is almost exactly what happened uh, in, in 2020. And so they imagine that China goes for very, very harsh, uh, you, know, you know, measures, and then other Western countries uh, copy those measures, and those measures are in fact uh, quite well accepted by society. And in fact, you know, they they imagine that that you know would, would end up, you know, uh, the you know, making these author new newly authoritarian measures kind of permanent. And uh, and then and of, and of course you have also you know the uh, the uh, the event that was hosted the uh, you know, the. Um, that was event in, uh, at the end of 2019, yeah. event, event 201, which was hosted by the WA Economic, World Economic Forum and the Johns Hopkins uh, University. And they and they also imagine a scenario very, very similar to what actually happened, you know, a global pandemic that breaks out in China. And they, 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 they you know, they, they uh, consider various measures that should be implemented. And a lot of the measures that ended up being implemented, you know, were, were discussed in that, on that occasion, such as, you know, the you know, full spectrum, you know, control of, of information online and offline and, and, and so on. With one exception, which, uh, which was the word lockdown. And that's very interesting and, and instructive that the word lockdown doesn't appear in the event 201 uh, framework. And that, and that is, and there's quite a lot of evidence that to show, you know, that this was, a novel approach in that sense. Now, coming back to this idea of how new was this? It wasn't included in the Event 201. The word doesn't appear once in the November 2019 WHO report, not once. And we interviewed the author of that, lead author of that report for the book, who said that they had it, the report was based on the state-of-the-art literature. Didn't use the word lockdown once. So that's really strong evidence that this was an entirely new response. Hmm. And, and again, I think that what, what you mentioned just very briefly, you know, um, Alex, on, on how um, on how lockdowns ended up, you know, being very tightly correlated to vaccines. I think that also points to the fact that this was part of a um, of uh, <clears throat> I think, you know, it, we can't analyze these aspects of the pandemic management in isolation. So I think the uh, lockdowns have to be understood as uh as 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 something that you know was necessary also to pave the way to the uh politics of uh, 
um, the policies of mass vaccination that came afterwards. I mean, I don't think you can understand the latter without without the former. And so I think that also points to uh, to this having been, uh, you know, part of a um, of uh, of a sort of a, a more long term plan that did include, you know, as as kind of an endpoint. Um, the, uh, the the mass vaccination of societies, which would have been very very hard to uh, to implement without you know with, without the argument that that was the way out of lockdowns. It's interesting that you know you started at uh, talking there, Thomas, about the a lot of the kind of planning around this had been around issues related to bioterror, and and it's interesting then that the eventual lockdown that emerges and the various, albeit different forms of lockdown, but ultimately all lockdowns across majority of states in the world, end up having this repressive and sort of totalizing aspect to them, which one would imagine from a, a response to some widespread bioterror, um, which is rather different to, I, I think, one would imagine in response to kind of health threat, which is much more, um, well, I guess, agentless, right? It doesn't have uh, an obvious agent behind it. Um, so I, I find that interesting. And it might be worth at this stage to, uh, if you would mind telling us a little bit in narrative terms, how the lockdowns came about reminding us because it I think it's useful to tell that story in terms of trying to get to an answer an answer which you guys provide in the book um, as to why lockdowns became generalized across the majority of states um, and how it went from an unprecedented measure to one which became um, the default and one which it was very hard to um, think of alternatives other than to say, no, I don't want this and it shouldn't be done. And I think that's in, indeed part of the problem of the debate around it, which um, is an issue we might get to uh, later on. I mean, if I just, I, perhaps I could just say something about the first part of your comment there, Alex, and then Thomas, having lived it through Italy, you're probably better positioned to do the narrative part. But uh, I think the question of the, you know, how this seems almost a militarised response is very important because, of course, it was a militarised response. That is the fundamental issue. And, and why was it a militarised response? Well, as you mentioned, the relationship between fears around bioterror and the security establishment and uh, this is a public health issue. But actually what we know, and, and we mentioned in the book in several places, is that the, the, the security establishment, particularly in the United States, had been very heavily involved in uh, funding research into this kind of area for a long period of time. And we should also recognise uh, that... Um, the security establishment had been very heavily involved in uh, the kind of biopharma industrial complex since the era of the Cold War. The development of the vaccine industry in the 1960s and 1970s was very closely connected to Cold War technologies and the Cold War. So this is not actually a new relationship. This, you know, I'm speaking perhaps as a historian here. This is a this is actually an old relationship. It shouldn't really surprise us, but it's a very important part of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, so what? I mean, it, of course, the first time—I mean, the first moment we start to uh, hear about lockdown is um, is when Wuhan goes into lockdown, and then the wider region of Hubei go, goes into lockdown, and that's the first time that the term kind of enters the uh, the media and the political discourse. And it's interesting to see how initial. Um, 
the initial responses, even of, uh, of most media outlets, were were you know were of uh, you know shock, surprise, dismay, and even quite uh, harsh criticism of the um, of the Chinese measures. And in fact, we see reports in the Western media of you know the the, the extreme lengths that the Chinese authorities are going to. Um, to keep people inside their homes, we had you know r- reports in the media of uh, authorities kind of welding people inside their homes and tracking them with drones all the way up into uh, you know solitary mountainous areas, and uh, and so the reaction is one of of surprise, and in fact uh, there's also quite widespread uh, skepticism of the efficacy of these measures, and uh, various health experts that were interviewed in the very early days of the Wuhan pandemic. Uh, were very you know, skeptical, if not outright critical, of these measures. They were, but they were simply repeating what was the consensus up until that moment, which was that these measures uh, were unlikely to succeed in uh, in killing, you know, in, in kind of eradicating the virus, and were highly likely, in fact, to um, um, to, to to cause a, you know to have health, you know, I mean, to to cause. Uh, a number of unintended uh, consequences, uh, you know, w- which might turn out to be very negative, and uh, and in fact, you know that, <clears throat> so, and and that that was the consensus up to that moment, and so that reaction was uh, was understandable, and uh, and what we see is that narrative starts to shift, uh, you know, very almost overnight, really. Um, and of course, Italy plays a crucial role in that respect. I mean, uh, you know. It, Italy, like all countries, it went from having uh, a kind of a dismissive approach towards the um, uh, towards the outbreak in China. Initially, there was, you know, a, a refusal to implement, for example, uh, to 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 stop fights from China and all that, and and, uh, and then almost uh, almost overnight, you know, the uh, the authorities go into uh, full on emergency response uh, in Italy and. Uh, in response to uh, you know the flare up of cases, you know a very localized flare up of cases in in northern Italy, they um, you know the, the Italian government decides to uh, you know go for something utterly unprecedented, even more unprecedented than what was than what had been done in China. And again, so when we talk of lockdown, you know there's, all, there's always this you know. Uh, you know, people tend to compare the Chinese response to the Western response. You know, which was harsher, which was more stringent, which was worse, and uh, and of course there are various ways of understanding. You know, uh, but I think the uh, of course the in- some of the individual measures that China implemented, such as for example, welding people inside their homes, is something we ne- you know, we didn't see anywhere in the West. But at the same time, the scope, uh, the territorial scope of these measures, um, that that. Out of the blue, Italy decides to implement almost from one day to to another, uh, and that is, you know, the idea of nation of a nationwide lockdown. That's that that, that went far beyond what even China had done up till then, uh, because of course China locked down. Even if we consider, you know, the lockdown of the wider region of Hubei in absolute terms, that a lot of people live there, you know, several million people. But in relative terms, relative to the population and to the wider economy of China. It's it's a very small region. I mean, it amounts to about three percent of the Chinese population. So, of course, the wider societal impact, the wider nationwide impact of those measures, is going to be relatively uh, contained, as it was. And of course, deciding to completely shut down economic and social activity on the entire national territory—that's a completely <laughs> different affair. And, um, and and that's what Italy does. And uh, <clears throat> and Italy uh, and interestingly, it does it. 
uh, it goes into lockdown the same day that the uh, WHO declares the pandemic. And again, you know, was this simply a a, a, was a, a coincidence? Or, or I mean, again, that does point to to the fact that this, you know, this this, this that, that, that this had probably been in the talks for 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 at least you know uh, some some uh, well, I mean, it's not something that was decided that same day, I think, and um, and so and I think and that's what really changed everything. And of course, that 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 then rapidly shifts the narrative across the, the you know uh, the rest of the of Western countries as well. What had seemed inconceivable up until that moment um, suddenly becomes not only conceivable, but in fact uh, you know the only possible measure to um, to to the, uh, to 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 um, to go after the virus, to control the virus, and ultimately to suppress the virus and avoid uh, an, an inconceivably high. Um, death toll and so and suddenly you know everyone's put well not everyone but the entire mainstream media and most of the political establishment is suddenly in several countries is suddenly pushing for lockdowns as as the only solution and um and the pressure coming from the media from international organizations from figures like you know bill gates and others is uh is is so strong that it actually forces uh even you know several governments to backtrack and of course the, the case of the UK government is an obvious example, but also, uh, you know, uh, Trump's U-turn is also another example. And so you see how that's when the kind of the response become starts to get hijacked by the uh, by the technocrats, which uh, come to uh, you know acquire even um, more power and control than politicians. That's a very important point because then you have this kind of two-week period between March the eighth. And March the, I would say March the twenty fourth. So what to to what happens? First of all, you know you have Italy going into lockdown, and the WHO is absolutely key, as Thomas says, because the WHO, uh, although nobody conceived of a nationwide lockdown, the report which the WHO published on the February the twenty fifth, twenty twenty, after their visit to to Wuhan, made it clear that they completely supported the the, the Chinese authority. In the in the measures that they'd taken, and expected every country where new cases were uh, found to follow the same policy. So, it, it, in a sense, that sets the ground rules for what happened then in early March. And then you have this kind of two week period where, first of all, most of the major Western European countries very quickly follow suit with Italy. The outlier is the UK and Sweden. Uh, and then March the sixteenth, Neil Ferguson, uh, Imperial College team published this report about what will happen, projections of mortality with and without various measures, uh, and predicts, um, and, and those predictions are very interesting and just show how unbelievable it is that what happened happened. Because, you know, in, by the end of March, Ferguson's team was saying that they, pre- one, one, one news report said that they predicted 5,700 deaths in the UK if uh, the lockdown measures were followed. Well, as we now know, you know, over 170,000 people have been said, uh, you know, uh, uh, are attributed to have died from COVID in the UK. And I know that 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 team says, well, 20,000 people more died because they didn't implement it hard enough. However you look at it, this is an unbelievable failure uh, of modelling projections on the the efficacy of the lockdown, which also goes to show that they didn't know what the efforts, what, what the consequences of that would be and how effective it would be. Uh, so that's you know that that starts happening on March the sixteenth. 
We know from the US that that makes a difference in American policy in the coronavirus task force, which has been set up. Uh, senior figures there say that Ferguson's report made a difference. Within a week, the media pressure is such, as Thomas said, March the 23rd, um, Boris Johnson announces the UK is going to go into a lockdown. Now, that is very important because what happens the following week uh, is that virtually, you know, many, many countries in the global south follow Britain into lockdown. And I think the British lockdown was very instrumental in that because the next day, India entered a lockdown. Narendra Modi announced a lockdown. And we know that there had been no indication at all. I've spoken to many people in India. There had been no indication at all that that was in the offing. He suddenly announced it. Uh, and that week, many countries in Africa went into lockdown too. So what we have is this process of, on the basis of a modelling report, which predicted 5,700 deaths if the lockdown measures were followed, the rolling out of this policy, uh, which had such catastrophic impacts, as we show in the book. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think, you know, that's... Um... You know, that's very kind of coherent narrative. And I think what happens um, afterwards doesn't have that much mystery, at least for me. I don't know about yourselves, but the sustaining of lockdowns once they had been agreed upon and they carried on for, let's say, you know, until May, um, a certain amount of path dependency um, probably guarantees that they continue as well as uh, to a certain extent just that elites discover certain political and potentially even economic benefits um, to maintaining the lockdown. So, I, I mean, I don't I, what I want to do is inquire a little bit more about the the initiation of lockdowns and, and why they were decided upon and how there was such a degree of universality. I mean, not completely, absolutely universal because there are some notable exceptions in terms of, um, for example, Sweden or Mexico or Brazil, for all different reasons to different degrees, kind of buck the trend a little bit. But what I find interesting is whether the political motivation for adopting these lockdowns was not just following Italy, because I don't know how much of a model Italy actually served as much as we'd like to just blame the Italians, wouldn't we, Thomas? Um, the, the reality is that uh, I wonder whether there wasn't some envy of China and a sense also of this rising power um, and the degree of control that it can exert, the degree of direction it can exert over its own politics and polity that um, led Western policymakers to think, actually, maybe we can do something similar. Yeah, I think that's a very, um, that's a, that's a very plausible analysis. We talk about that in the, in the, towards the final part of the book, in fact, how, uh, yes, there have been a lot of admiration growing of China. And of course, a lot of, you know, business connections of all kinds between Western societies, and not only Western uh, economies, but also the medical sector, even the publishing sector, you know, some of the top journals have offices in, 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 in China. So, you know, there was an integration at various levels of elites with Chinese uh, society. And so I think that, you know, I think that that certainly has an important part to play. I think the other thing that we do talk about in the book um, is propaganda. And we know that there was propaganda uh, around, the, around the severity of the virus in particular. Uh, these videos of people falling dead in the street uh, and all kinds of there were various things like that, which were then scrubbed from the Internet. Um, we don't know who was behind that. We know There's no evidence who was behind that, but we do know that it was there. Uh, and the attempt to remove it from the Internet subsequently kind of suggests that whoever was behind it wasn't necessarily just some hacker somewhere. It suggests something a bit more coordinated, but we don't know more than that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, did you put this down then? I mean, ultimately, 
I guess to because I mean my my default um, assumption is that it's a matter of imitation, um, which doesn't feel entirely satisfactory. But that basically, um, leading states uh, implemented this policy and just the other others went along with it, um, rather than coordination or even coercion. Um, ultimately, what do you put it down to? You know, the, it's the title of your book, the COVID consensus. How does it uh, how does it emerge? Well, that's the whole point. I mean, the emergence of, of such a tight, coherent narrative across countries, especially across all major countries, does point to a high level of, um, of, of uh, I would say, um, a certain degree of central coordination. And of course, it's, you know, that doesn't mean that there was, you know, a room somewhere with five people in it, you know, which was deciding the global uh, COVID response. But I think it's pretty clear when we look at the uniformity, the harmonization of the narrative across the mainstream media, the harmonization and the kind of micro control of the narrative on on online media, on social networks. We now know also thanks to the Twitter files, although a lot of us had, you know, an understanding of what was going on. But we now know that there was, you know, a very tight coordination between major major states, first and foremost, the U.S., uh, the United States and all, ma- all major social media platforms to tightly control the narrative, even on these platforms, uh, and to impose kind of the COVID consensus narrative on these um, on these platforms. Um, <clears throat> we know the WHO uh, played a crucial role in uh, kind of acting as a middleman between these various actors uh, right from the start, already in February 2020. The WHO launches its anti-disinformation uh, um, program, which aims to, uh, which establishes basically, uh, uh, you know, um, very you know, sort of a, a control room with all the major social media networks and also all the major, uh, um, you know, traditional media networks um, to impose, you know, uh, or, or to enforce, you know, uh, the the dominant narrative. Um, so again, you know, we, we, wherever we look, we do see a high level of, uh, of, of planning and, and coordination. And, uh, and I think, um, and again, you know, we have to uh, understand that in terms of uh, obviously a confluence of interests. I think there were clearly, uh, economic interests at play, um, I think if we know, if we look at um, you know the dominant fraction of capital today, and at least in Western capitalism, uh, we find you know clearly uh, the, the the IT sector, big tech, and uh, the, the the biotech and pharmaceutical sector, um, and clearly both both sectors you know which have been sitting for quite some time at the top of the kind of economic hierarchy of Western capitalism, clearly hugely benefited from the um from the code from the policy response and it's uh and 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 we have and so it's it's easy to assume i think it's natural to assume that they played a role in pushing for uh for for that response because they, they had to benefit from it in in a, in a variety of ways which they did uh and in fact we also see uh quite intense coordination between these sectors we now we now know that for example uh Pfizer was in direct talks with uh Twitter XX you know uh asking them to censor this 
or that or, or, or that person online, not necessarily because they were spreading misinformation, but simply because they were maybe uh, putting out true information that went, you know, correct factual information that went against the dominant narrative. And so we see quite a high level of cross-coordination between these major sectors, which all had to benefit from the kind of uh, let's lock down until the vaccines are ready uh, response. Um, but of course, as you mentioned, there were also political, um, you know, reasons for um for 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 wanting to uh go down that go down that path um i think we've western elites have been have have given up you know trying governing through uh consensus through kind of the traditional kind of post-war class compromise uh i think now you know we we have seen an authoritarian turn in western politics for quite some time and you know and this this use of this 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 use of fear and sort of politics of fear have been an important aspect i think of western politics for quite some time at least dating all the way back to 9 11 and uh, and again in all the scenarios that we've been talking about you know the the it always came out, you know, how, you know, how, how a health crisis might have been a way to implement a, um, to, to, to implement, uh, you know, um, measures of social control that would have been otherwise very hard to implement. I think, so I I think mean, there I were think political a, reasons for to go down that road as well. I mean, there's this political side, which is obviously fundamental, we've talked about. I think we also have to look at the, the, the question of, uh, and we look at it in the book too, of the, the way in which people responded to it. You know, why did people f- accept this? And there are various reasons for that. It comes partly to do with, I think, uh, the nature of, uh, you know, you met Thomas, you mentioned tech and the growing the growing role of tech in, uh, in, in our lives, in our consciousness. Uh, the idea that, you know, tech will provide the solution. You know, that's something that we'd been, you know, kind of we, we'd accepted over the previous five or ten years. Also something we look at, you know, the, the idea that actually surveillance, you know, we accept surveillance as part of our daily lives. The Snowden affair had shown that very clearly. People had just continued signing up to the various apps. And, you know, this, of course, the, the fundamental difference here was that uh, surveillance was now a good thing. You know, you were being a good person if you tracked and traced. And, you know, so there was an ethical normativity which was given to actions which we had been participating in and tacitly accepting for, for quite some time and relationships with the state, in fact, which we had been tacitly accepting for a long time, which I think um, is really significant in understanding why not only was there this political drive, but also why there was so much support around it to start with. You know, that those two things are connected. Uh, and then, you know, so as Thomas says, you know, there's this, there is a, a sense of a dominant narrative which is being imposed here, constructed, a COVID consensus. And, and so as a historian, you know, I spent you know, most of my career trying to unpick dominant narratives. So uh, that's... And I think Thomas would say the same. So I think, you know, we, that's where and that's one of one of the things we talk about in the book is also our, our kind of incredulity that people who we thought of as fellow travellers in that regard suddenly thought that the mainstream narrative was fine. Yeah. So, so um, turning to uh, the effects of lockdown, and I think we'll um, deal with, I guess, maybe what might be the harder case in the global north in just a second. But turning to the global south, um it's surprising why, you know, that poor and middle income countries went along with lockdowns. I My thinking that they should imitate Western countries is no surprise. Um, and so much aid is tied up with them um, going along with various sort of directives and guidelines that it's not surprising that they should do the same here. But what's really remarkable, I think, is that um, 
a lockdown would be most damaging um, in poor and middle income countries, countries where there's a high degree of informality, uh, large proportions live in slums and so on. And you dedicate um, a fair bit of the book to to discussing these consequences. Why don't you just talk us through um, what precisely is the problem with um, with the application of lockdowns in countries like these and also why they adopted them? Okay, yeah, I mean, this is quite incredible. I mean, uh, so let's go back to 2014, 2015, uh, Sierra Leone, Ebola. The w, uh, so a, a three-day lockdown was was trialed. And Médecins Sans Frontières, for example, Doctors Without Borders, warned against it uh, because it would lead to growing lack of trust in the medical authorities in a context where 85% of the African population lives in, works in the informal sector, gets money in the informal sector. Now, what that means is you have to move about. It's about taking goods to market. It's it's about movement. It's about working on uh, share taxis. If you cut that down, uh, people are suddenly effectively almost on the breadline straight away. I, I, for the book, I, I interviewed a colleague in Nigeria who said, yeah, you know, everybody in Nigeria now agrees that, you know, you can ha- this policy will work for three days. Okay, so this was the kind of policy which, you know, first of all, there's this question of the, you know, enormous medical colonialism involved in just saying, okay, this policy will just put it out everywhere. Uh, and uh, so, so that, and then why doesn't it work uh, biomedically? Well, because, uh, so one in seven of the world's population lives in slums. Think about Mike Davis's book, Planet of Slums. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means they're crammed in. So if you have put in a, a curfew, you're actually forcing people together. And, and this is a virus which uh, circulates inside more than outside. And of course, most low middle income countries uh, have got warm weather and people spend in those situations much more time outside than inside because inside their living conditions are poor. So you're actually, it's actually a counterproductive policy. Uh, and we can see that, for example, uh, the case of South Africa. There's a fantastic book by Leslie Bank and Banks and Nellie Sharples on the case of South Africa, which has you know far and away the highest COVID death rates on the African continent, had one of the continent's most draconian lockdowns, and they and they effectively argue that because of the draconian lockdowns that uh, that this happened as alongside you know by the end of twenty twenty almost fifty percent of South African businesses had, had gone bankrupt. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. The, so there are the bio, there are the biomedical implications. The fact that there's a different socio sociological environment, social environment, which means that viruses will circulate differently now. That shouldn't be rocket science to scientists, uh, and the fact that you know, in in a, you know, a nice suburban apartment in Geneva, this looks like a good idea for people living in a slum in Accra is quite, you know, it's, it's pretty disgusting. So, um, why did they get in? Why did they get enacted? One of the things which is quite clear is that the countries, and I speak here for Africa, but the countries in Africa which Im- imposed the most uh, most keenly were the ones who were most part of the Western geopolitical project. Uh, so South Africa, Senegal, for example, would be another good case. Uh, countries which are very closely allied to broader geopolitical projects. And of course, the other important issue in the African context is that this was a policy which came out of China. And we know that China has a huge, uh, a huge influence on the African continent as well. So all of those aspects make it very difficult to envisage how you know people say oh well african nations are sovereign they didn't have to go along with that but in all of these contexts which i've just outlined i think it's hard to imagine a counterfactual situation where the rest of the world you know china america france uh you know they um they decide that this is the policy that everybody has to follow and you know african leaders say well actually no we decided it's not for us 
it's quite hard to envisage that. Yeah, I mean, it is remarkable. I, I think there might be a, a paradox here, though you might disagree with some of the presuppositions of, of this paradox, but that um, I, I had thought already early on in the pandemic that the that those places which would most benefit from a lockdown to the extent that a lockdown would spare uh, very limited healthcare capacity, lack of hospital beds, lack of medical equipment, and so on, are precisely those in which a lockdown would be most damaging, um, which is to say in, in, in poorer countries. Hello, listener. That's the end of the first part of the interview. For the second part, you'll have to sign up at patreon.com slash We do hope to see you there. That will also be followed by the after party where we ask some probing questions about what we've heard. And remember, if you don't follow or subscribe to BungaCast, uh, please do so now and drop us a review wherever you can. Bunga, Dublin, Colombo, Antananarivo.